0: Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Baroness Doreen Lawrence. Doreen was born in Clarendon, Jamaica and moved to London in 1962. She worked as a bank clerk before marrying and settling happily into family life with her firstborn, Stephen. Everything changed on the 22nd of April 1993, when Stephen was murdered in an unprovoked racist attack. Though five suspects were quickly identified to police, it took nearly 20 years for just two men to be sentenced for murder. A year after these convictions, Doreen took her seat in the House of Lords, and she continues to hold those in power to account and to advocate for marginalized voices in the United Kingdom. This year marks the 30th anniversary of Stephen's death, and Doreen is inviting everyone to make a pledge on the 22nd of April and to commit to taking one positive action in Stephen's name. Through sharing Stephen's story, this campaign aims to celebrate the extraordinary things that can be achieved by ordinary people and to inspire young people to realize their potential. You've been speaking up on behalf of your son, Stephen, ever since he was murdered in 1993. But I'd like to begin a little earlier with you and your own childhood. Can you please tell us about your granny and the love and example that she showed you?
1: Yeah, my grandmother, out of all her grandchildren, I think I was the only one that actually lived with her. But then again, my parents was over here in the UK and I didn't know anything more than that, because I don't remember my mother as growing up um, when she left. I don't remember her at all. And my grandmother was just, I think, was the sweetest person, you know, and how she cared for me. I remember her, um, I think I talked about this before, she used to make me long dresses so the mosquitoes wouldn't bite my legs and things. And living in a village, when she's go to collect milk from the farmer down the road, Mice ago with her, she's had this little milk pan that I would carry. And it was such a lovely, lovely growing up. And that's what I miss when I talk about my childhood. You know, if that had carried on into my teenage years, that would have been so fantastic. But yeah.
0: You chose to bury your son, Stephen, alongside your granny in Jamaica, in what you described as the best resting place in the world. Can you tell me about that spot?
1: Yeah, I think where my grandmother's buried is on a family plot and there's nothing there. I mean, you say there's no houses there, just trees. You see, you just have the cool breeze blowing. Even now. Even now, there's nothing nothing on the land apart from their graves. That's it, that's there. And so when I go to visit, you can sit on Stephen's grave or you can sit on my grandmother's grave. And there's like they're facing each other. And at the time, thinking about his funeral and where we we're going to bury him, and when it was suggested about taking him to Jamaica, bury him in Jamaica, Stephen had his first birthday over in Jamaica. Then we went back again when he was about four. He loved it, especially at four. He, he really loved it. And they have this big cemetery. And when that was being described to me, you know, you cross over one grave to the other, and I just think, no, I don't want that. I don't want people walking on him to go to visit their family. And when my aunt suggested, why don't we just bury him next to my grandmother, I didn't have to think twice about it. And at the time, I was really pleased that I did that because they would never allowed him to rest in peace in this country. So I was really, really pleased that I was able to have the opportunity to do that.
0: When you moved to England at the age of nine, you didn't get to experience the same carefree childhood as your younger siblings. Were you a, a very serious child as a result?
1: um, Yes, I think I continued to be very serious at times. <laughs> I think you're pretty serious still too. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think as life was so much different. Here you didn't have the freedom that you had over in the Caribbean, you didn't have that freedom. And being the eldest of when I came here, I had a younger brother, he was about two. When I arrived here, then my sister and then my other brother. So I was the eldest of four. And I presume I was sort of in a position where I had to um, more or less be mother to them, look after them, you know, bath them and all the rest of it. And so I didn't have that freedom which I had with my grandmother. and, And I really missed that.
0: What was it like to have your very own family unit? Firstly, as a newlywed with Neville, your husband. And then welcoming your first child, Stephen.
1: I mean, so those years was lovely. I mean, especially when Stephen was born, because when Neville and I got married, I was very young. At the time, you don't think about the age. I was 20 when I got married. Two weeks after my 20th birthday, I got married. And I presume in those times, you were a lot more mature, I felt. As a young person, I was really mature. Having Stephen a couple of years later... I think because I didn't have that relationship with my mother. So I didn't know what to expect when I had Stephen. And I remember when we came home, I had this thing in my head. Why? I don't know. Nobody ever said that to me. But I felt that he, it was like he was alone to me and they was going to come and take him away from me. And why? There was no reason why I should think that. But that was my thought at that time. It's extraordinary in retrospect, because he was taken away. He was taken away from me, yes, he was taken.
0: Do you think the very fact that you had that awful sense that gave you the amazing strength that you were able to muster in dealing with it?
1: I don't know. I think because I've always had this feeling of, um, how can you say, especially with all three of my children, that they were mine. And I wanted them to have as much of their childhood as possible because I think I didn't have that after the age of nine. I wanted to make sure that they enjoyed every minute of their lives, taking them out. You know, we went practically everywhere. You know, you go to the cinema, you go to the theatre, you go to the museums, parks and stuff. And when Steve was really tiny and I used to walk down to the town centre and I saw this other mother with her child and he was walking across the wall and I said to her, In then days, I felt I could speak to anybody. And I said, I really wish that uh, my son could do that and hope he can do that soon. And she said to me, the best place for him is in that pram that you're pushing away. (laughs) But then, you know, you're naive as a young mother. You don't know and understand as children grow up that they have their own minds to do their own things. For me, it was just looking forward to him growing up and what he could do.
0: Talk to me about his talents, his ambitions, his hopes for the future.
1: Um, C was very creative with his friend Elvin. They went everywhere together. And he's always been drawing ever since he was really young. He would make us birthday cards and stuff that he would do.
0: He was artistic.
1: He was very artistic and... I remember when I first bought him like a colouring book and the pencils and everything. Most children, they sort of scribble right across the lines, but he never did that. His colouring was within the lines of the picture. As I say, and he, he too was quite a serious young man. He knew what he wanted. I think as a baby, he cried a lot. I think that's because he couldn't walk. He couldn't. The minute he started. He was frustrated. He was. The minute he started walking and could do things, he was happy.
0: Mm -hmm. He was really happy. You've said, and how true this is, that grief is a very hard thing to share. Very hard thing. Can you tell me about the impact of this violence and loss on your family?
1: Um, It's changed our lives. It's changed all of us. Um, I think where I am now, I never expected to be where I am. Just, you know, I live on my own. Um, Family come and visit, yes. But... I never foresee my future of being on my own. Mm. And grief is something they say it either bring you closer or it tears you apart. And I think that's what that's what happened to us. You know, we... um so we grieve in our own way, but my grief had to make sure it was contained
0: because
1: mm. I had two other children to look mm. after. So it mm. was really contained that I had to um, make sure that... You know, you fulfill all the things that they need. You know, simple things like going to the dentist, you have to do that, to the doctors and stuff. Mm. So I think for me, I've always had to not say suppress, but not to be outwardly Mm. too much because I wanted to make sure that they had a good life. Because actually isolation
0: wasn't something you'd ever experienced. I mean, you had this family life in Jamaica and here, and then suddenly you were very much on your own. Mm, yeah, the loss was terrible, but then the isolation.
1: That's true because many times when I go home, I go home to an empty house. Mm. Go home to an empty house, and yes, you got your phone, so you, you're constantly on the phone, and and that's how you keep in touch with everybody. You know, I wouldn't sit at home without speaking to anybody on the phone. So there's that, and I don't think anybody understands that. I think there's sometimes they look at me and they think, OK, you know, you're doing all right, but am I really? Mm-hmm. But now
0: you're sort of part of something which to many of us look quite remote, which is the House of
1: Lords. And that's not exactly family, is it? Or is it, perhaps?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, you won't say exactly fun, but there, there's a few people there that, you know, I communicate with and we get on really well together. Good. We'll share things mm-hmm. and we we'll go off and have tea and stuff like that, but... It can be quite isolated because I think for somebody like me going to the House of Lords, Mm. no background in politics, no background as advisors or MPs or any of that, which the majority of people in the House of Lords, that's, that's their background. And so I've had to, I don't know, make a not say life, but make a, a way for myself mm. in there. And at first it was very daunting mm. going in there. Mm. Um, and now I do feel comfortable. I do feel comfortable.
0: It's good because, I mean, you certainly weren't a public speaker. You weren't used to being recognised in public. You were quite a private person. And this long campaign for justice, I wonder where did all the strength come from? Did it come from... Stephen's spirit?
1: I don't know, It could because when he was young and we used to talk quite a lot um, because I'm always worrying about him going there because he was such an independent person and I would sort of say to him, you've got to be careful when you're out and all the rest of it. And he's like, mum, you know, your problem is you care too much. And it's the worry that as I think as most mothers would have when their children walk out the door every day... Will they come back home? And there's no reason to think that they wouldn't come home. But as a young black man, there's always that possibility that they might not come home.
0: Has your public role actually become a little bit easier with time? Because, or indeed, is it something that you do because you feel compelled to speak up on behalf of Stephen and those who need an advocate? And you're a great advocate.
1: Um, I don't. I wouldn't say it. It becomes easier. I think it becomes more difficult for me. I think expectation of me. I think I'd rather have my son and nobody knows me, that I can just walk around and chat to people like I used to. And if you're waiting for a bus or waiting for a train, you know, somebody comes and says, Oh, the weather's terrible or whatever you want to talk about. And now I seem to shut down. I don't do those conversations. I, you know. And a lot of people, they do want to talk. And Mm. I just feel that it's like my private life is not my private life because everybody knows that little bit about me. So what do you share? Mm -hmm. You know, what do you share with people?
0: Younger listeners probably don't know much about Stephen. They know of the event, but they don't know much about him. Telling his story is at the very heart of your work with the Stephen Lawrence Day. So can we go back to the days and weeks after the attack you quickly realised that the police were asking the wrong questions and they did nothing to support your family.
1: Yeah, uh, that I don't understand. I think for me, I always used to think that Stephen's death and what happened to him was just such a, a horrible way for Stephen to have died. And I think the shock of that, I thought that the police would see it in the same way as I saw it and they wanted to do whatever they could to make sure they catch those people who did that to him. Mm. And then within that week, you realise they're not interested at all. They assume he must be into drugs. And I think is to have those impression of a young black man that they're not worthy, you know, they're not honest, that there's always some criminality about them. And the vast majority of young people are not like that. And I think when you read anything in the newspaper, it's always the negative things. Like any community, it's a small percentage of people who do bad things, very small percentage. And the vast majority of people don't. And even if Stephen was into whatever, even if he was, the mere fact that somebody took his life, that is what you focus on. Mm. And they didn't. They did not want to know what happened to him. And then to try and say, like, they've never met anybody like me before, a family like... There are millions of families out there. And by saying that, for you to think yourself so special and different... And for me, I wanted always to make sure they understand I am no different. Do you
0: think at that time that race was the big issue?
1: The police were a very white force. Race was definitely an issue race was. Because I think a couple of months later, when another young white boy had lost his life, they were there and making sure that they investigate the crime. Stephen was just another. And how many young black men had died before him? And the same thing happened. And I presume for me, I was determined that he would never be seen like that. And he was never a statistic. He has a name. He had a future. But then it took nearly twenty years, and if we didn't fight for that, we would never have got the just any justice at all for Stephen. We would never have got that.
0: Do you think that if so ghastly an event occurred today, it would be better handled, more supportive, more understanding, or do you think race would still play a part?
1: I think race would still play a part in it. I think, but they would act a little bit different because when Anthony Walker was killed, I mean years later. I think what they did was to isolate the family. You know, so the family thought they were doing a fantastic job and I thought, well, not really. They're just trying to make sure that no bad press happened around them. And all the press is still there, accusing the the police of being racist. That hasn't changed. Let me just bring a little
0: shaft of bright news. Nelson Mandela, what was it like meeting him at this
1: stage? He was a giant of a man Hmm. and... I think walking into the room when he came in, his demeanour, because I think when you look at people who have got such prestige, you expect something. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but he had such a calm voice when he spoke to us. And I think if he hadn't taken notice of what happened to us as a family, the first lot of of rest would never have happened. Mm. You know, when he came out and said that he knows in South Africa black lives are cheap Mm. and he did not expect it here, that just made a big difference because exactly what it is, black lives are cheap, you know, and that's how the authorities look at us.
0: When the Crown Prosecution Service announced that they didn't have enough evidence to charge the gang that murdered Stephen, you took the decision to proceed with a private prosecution can you explain the historical significance and the risk
1: in making that decision? Because we're not a rich woman. No, see, I think we as a family was very fortunate for the support that we've had. Imran Khan, a very young solicitor, and he had the, the, we said the know-how, but whatever he had, he knew that we needed to have a big figure, somebody like Michael Mansfield, QC, at the time. Mm -hmm. And without them and their support, because we had no money, we had no money at all to do anything, and they work for nothing. It wasn't until when we had the committal hearing that they were allowed to go to the public purse to get anything. So their support that we had at that time was immeasurable, because if we didn't have that, there's nowhere we could have talked about private prosecution. And at the time it was said, this has never happened. It's 150 years since anything like this has ever happened. The fact that we were a black family trying to get justice. And we, at least I know, I went into it quite, I was naive, thinking that if the jurors was to hear, we didn't have one thing that couldn't convict, but we had a combination of things. And I think we probably could have got a conviction. I, we had a judge Justice Curtis, and it was long after I get to realise, he was brought in special. He did not allow any of the evidence to be shown to the jurors. There was loads of legal arguments went on for the first two weeks. And at the end you of that... You mean there was an intention? I believe t- To it ensure was. that there wasn't a proper... Well, could you imagine it? Think about it. That if you've not had a private prosecution in 150 years you got a black family decided that they're going to take justice into their own hands, and we got a guilty verdict from that. Could you imagine what would happen to the justice system? And as I say, I was quite naive at the time, but afterwards I began to think, because he decided to instruct the jury to bring a not guilty verdict, and knowing if you bring a not guilty, you could never charge those individuals again. Hmm. It doesn't matter, that is what... It is. You could never do that.
0: Do you know, I think your naivety... I think it was very easy for reporters and people like me to realise that you were an absolutely normal black family who'd suffered the most terrible, terrible loss and you were being treated unbelievably badly by the system, which was incapable of dealing with a black victim. It was a terrible moment, wasn't it?
1: It was, and we as a family... You just assumed that justice will happen.
0: You have said that that failure of that prosecution was like a second bereavement.
1: Mm. I could not they believe... They almost punished you. They did. The justice system did. And it's like we were led up the garden path. Mm. You know, we had um, police officers who were saying they're doing everything that they can to help and support. And it went on for months. And at that particular time... When he got down to it, we came up with nothing. In fact, it was even worse. So it's, it's like a double whammy having Stephen been murdered, have the justice system failing us, the police, the judges, you name it. We've had all of those been knocked and continue to be knocked. And the police, they had a hand to play in all of that, making us believe that we could get justice. And at this, behind the scene, they were doing something completely different. And it wasn't until it was the inquest when one of the officers more or less said, he told us that we couldn't have got anywhere. And they led us to believe that we could.
0: How significant do you think the change of power in the government from Tory to Labour was in securing a public
1: inquiry? It's very significant because I think without meeting up with Jack Straw, who was in the opposition at the time... And he said if they were to get into power, he would look to do a public inquiry. But then when it came down to it, after they got into power and we met with Jack Straw again, I think the people around him more or less advised him that they should do something similar to what Scarman did Mm. after the Brixton riot. And I said, I would never get the justice for Stephen if we went down that route. And so I managed to persuade him that we needed to, I just needed to hear what happened around Steve. I think, because all the time we don't know the facts and that's what I wanted to hear is the facts. I wasn't trying to look to, I don't know, blame or whatever. I just wanted to know what happened to my son.
0: Mm. Well, of course, what was a real turning point was the Macpherson inquiry into the whole business. It was regarded as a watershed moment in race relations. Both the report and the Home Secretary acknowledged that there'd been professional incompetence and institutional racism, which is a strong concept at that time. Did this give you hope that something positive would come out of your loss?
1: Yes, yeah, I, I suppose from that I was hoping that the justice system would change, the police would change, in how they investigate murders. You know, that's one of my hopes, that that would happen. And then they started a new inquiry again. I think I've lost count of the amount of investigation that happened around Stephen. So they started another investigation again, looking at what happened. And all of those came to nothing. No individual was ever charged. They still talk about a wall of silence. There's a lot of things that could have changed. But I think what the inquiry did was change the double jeopardy law. Mm. And at first, when that happened, I think it was like 2005, I think when that happened, it never benefited us as a family. You know, it benefited others. And it wasn't until, I think, between 2006, 2007, when Clive Driscoll took over the case. Clive Driscoll, it was a senior investigating officer who took over Stephen's uh-huh. case. And that was a transformation. That was a transformation. But before he took the case over, he was sent down to Deptford Police Station because it was closing the station down to get rid of all the files that was there. Lummy. And because he started reading the files, then it just dawned on him that this is about Stephen, Stephen Lawrence. So he took more and he read more and he wanted to do the investigation around Stephen's murder.
0: I mean, the decency of one man made a huge difference.
1: Exactly. The one man who I always say took shame out of their eyes. But at the end of the day, he never got any acknowledgement... For all the stuff that he did, you know, like most people, you get an award to say you've done, he never got nothing.
0: Let's hear it now. Who was he exactly?
1: Clive Juska was a senior officer. So when the case came to the end back in 2012, he had approached retirement, but he wanted to stay because he felt that there was more work to be done and more investigation to be done. But he couldn't convince his senior that... That's what needed to happen.
0: We've just had Baroness Casey's review of the Metropolitan Police, which was launched after the murder of Sarah Everard. Were you angered that Sir Mark Rowley, the current commissioner, wouldn't use the term institutional to describe the racism, sexism, and homophobia she identified? He said that the word
1: had become too politicised. There's nothing political about the word institutional racism, but that's the fact. Mm. That is a fact. And in either not to accept that, that means I find that rather than you're looking to change, the status quo still exists. And I mean, somebody's done something wrong, and unless you look to fix it and apologize and be open about it, then how do you move on? Mm. And I think that's the reason why, since the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the police hasn't moved on, because they have not really truly accepted it even though I think that Paul Condon said he did at the time. But they did nothing to change.
0: Well, it does speak to me to the continued defensiveness about the problems within the Met. Does your position in the House of Lords help you to keep a closer eye on those in power? And how
1: important is it to keep doing that? I think being in the House of Lords is a reminder. And there are many a times I'll be sitting in the chamber and somebody would mention my name, and the work that has happened around the police, around the justice system. And so it is a reminder. And I don't think they can move away from that. Well, it's a reminder that there's an awful lot still to be done. Exactly. And those in the chamber do question and question the government quite a lot. But they always have something to knock you back You know, there's no acceptance.
0: What do you think the motivation was in getting you into the House of Lords? A real desire to open up and question, or let's keep her quiet, put her on the benches there, she'll be intimidated by the whole system.
1: Um, I think that's the question I'd ask when (laughs) I had the phone call about whether or not I would accept it. And I think in most things, I always like to think about it first. It's not something I say, oh, yeah, great, great idea. And when I said... Can I think about it? It was Ed Miliband at the time. I think he was a little bit shocked. I think he expected me to say, oh, yes, please. But I needed to think, why the reason behind mm, it? Mm. And I would ring my friend, Imran, and I said, I've had this. What do you think? I said, are they trying to shut me up? And he said to me, no, it will give you more voice. Terrific. And he was right. It's been a
0: transformation. Yes. Can you tell me about the opportunities you're trying to create for young people through the Stephen Lawrence day foundation you worked in education and
1: it remains pretty central to your real interest doesn't it yes i think especially for our young people hmm. education is such an important thing in their lives and i want them to grasp it and another thing within the foundation what i'd like to see is how do we decolonize our curriculum so our kids understand their background And not just the black kids, but all children. Mm. I think they need to know what things mean. And to decolonize the education, it brings in the history of this country Mm. and what it means and what it means across the world. None of my generation was ever told that. No. None of us were ever talked to candidly about what was really going on in the time of empire. And I think I didn't know anything much, I think, as a child in and I missed school in the Caribbean. I didn't really. And I think it's only when I started to do my degree, which I did as a mature student, we had different segments. It was about British history. And I thought, for the first time, I'm going to hear the true history, the empire and everything. And all I heard was how great Britain... And I came out of there and I went to my personal tutor and I said, I'm not going back. And especially after Stephen's death, I said, I know... And I do not want to sit in another class listening to, telling me how great Britain is because I know that they're not. And I I never went back.
0: Amazing and shocking.
1: It was, you know. And it still is because, you know, if I was to talk to my children, they don't, you know, apart from me talking. And even so, they do, I presume at times, you know, think I'm going on too much about the history of this country and the history of the Caribbean and, and everywhere else. But I think we all need to learn.
0: Mm. Well, now you're asking people to make a pledge on the 22nd of April, very soon, to commit to taking one positive action in Stephen's name. Tell me more.
1: I think Stephen has changed so much in this country, not just the justice system, but trying to change around the police as well. But how does our young people, what lives do they want, how they want to grow up, how they want to see their community in the classroom, what would they like to see? is to say, well, I want to make sure when I walk out at my front door that everybody around me, as a child, I can say good morning to and feel comfortable to. It, it doesn't really matter what it is that they want to do for themselves. But look at Stephen's name and look and see how Stephen's name has changed within this country and what changes that they would like to see added on to that. Out of 100,
0: where are we? Have we moved up Are we anywhere near the society you want us to be and we want to be? I would say we have
1: moved, but not far enough. 20%, 30%? That's always very difficult to put a number (laughs) to it. And I I don't think I want to put a number to it. But I would say that we have. We have moved. Yeah, I agree. I think people are more open in talking about race, Mm. which they never used to be. They're more open to want to see changes. Mm -hmm. They do want to see that. And everybody wants to have a better life for themselves Mm. and for their family. So things have moved, but we just need to keep on, not in a nagging way, but looking at the positive side of what it means. Mm. You know, if you're looking to employ and you have how many people in front of you, make sure you give everybody the same opportunity because that can make a difference. And by having a reflection, when you have culture built into your organisation, you can see the difference.
0: It's an amazing thought. We're talking about the 30th anniversary of Stephen's death how will you be marking the 30th anniversary?
1: Well, we have a, a church service happening at St. Martin's in the Fields on, in fact, on the 22nd of April, so it's on, on, it's on the Saturday, where we've invited people right r- across the board um, to attend the service. It doesn't matter what political sure. thing that you're... Because uh, Stephen's not a partisan within that. You know, it's for everybody. And it's just to celebrate his life, mm. to celebrate his life. And for me, Stephen's always in my memory.
0: I think it's a really important thing to do because a new generation of people need to know and and need also to build on it. You wrote in your 2000, the autobiography that you wrote in 2000, that you, you didn't know if you would ever feel happy again. Can you find space
1: for happiness today? It's a tough question, I know. Um, there are some happiness because I think I've got my grandchildren and I've got mm, my children, mm. so they, they are that. But I feel that life is quite sad for me. I don't know, I think, you know, have someone to share your life with is important mm. and not having that, you know, it's, um, it's a bittersweet. Mm. You know, there, there are some positive things in my life, but there are some that's not so positive.
0: But the amazing thing is that all these years on, you're still trying. You're still determined to get there one way or another.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of things I do is looking at the future and Mm. looking at the next generation Mm. and the generation that follows after that. I'd like to see we get into a position where people are not talking about racism, that they feel comfortable in their skin to be who they are and to be open.
0: Doreen Lawrence, Baroness Lawrence of Clarendon in Jamaica. Thank you very, very much for talking to us. It's been amazing to listen to you. Thank you, John. Thank you. That was Baroness Doreen Lawrence remembering her 18-year-old boy, Stephen, and her long campaign for justice. I hope that you were inspired by this interview to make a pledge for Stephen on the 22nd of April. For more information about this Day of Remembrance and the work of the Foundation, please visit stephenlawrenceday.org or click on the links in the episode description and share this message with family and friends. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now.